everybody, I'm Chris and with me is Matt and we're slowing down to better connect with the stories and the people around us between the miles. Matt, here we are just continuing to roll on with these great guests and uh, I'm excited for today's guest because, um, and I know you're gonna talk a little bit about him, but because this is a, a personal friend of mine. Um, Jim and I have known each other for a number of years and, and when we reached out to him and he said yes, that he'd be on the show, I was super excited. Um, so I, I don't know what, what you're looking forward to the most on this show and what for our uh, listeners to, to capture uh, during our time with Jim. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, and I, I think we talked about this offline, uh, was, y you know, we have, you know, this this whole idea sparked out of the, the, the discussions and conversations that you and I were having on a lot of the runs uh, over the last year. And, you know, nothing right against any of the other guests. I mean, I, I've loved every conversation so far, but it actually felt like as we were having the conversation, we were on a run with Jim. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it was natural and it was organic, but, you know, you, you could probably attest to this. Like, I am just genuinely inquisitive and, and I found myself having question after question just based off of Jim's knowledge. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited for our guests to, to dig in as well. And hopefully, uh, you know, if they, if they have any questions afterwards, uh, that they'll reach out to us and, and maybe we can get, get them over to Jim. Yeah, definitely, definitely. He's got a, a new book coming out, which we'll talk about a little bit. He is um, a professor at the University of Notre Dame in, in the School of Pharmacy. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before, Jim and I have known each other for a number of years. He's one of the guys that I go uh, to the Adirondacks with to do a little bit of winter camping and just such a great storyteller. And I know we'll recap some of the things that we learned with Jim at the end of the show. But uh, without further ado, here is Jim Colhane. Jim, welcome to the show. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, uh, Jim, uh, for uh, people who uh, don't know you, uh, why don't you uh, start out by just sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, currently I am uh, a professor of pharmaceutical sciences and assistant dean for student academic success programs at Notre Dame of Maryland University School of Pharmacy. Uh, I came I came down to Baltimore, my wife and I, uh, in 2008 from Pennsylvania to help uh, launch the School of Pharmacy here, and, and we've been in Baltimore ever since and just love living here. Awesome, awesome. And, and so, uh, you know, Jim, as we mentioned in the intro, uh, you and I have known each other, I think for, what, over like 10 years or something like that? Uh, yes. Just, uh, and uh, Matt... Um, Jim and I connected through the love of camping and the outdoors. Uh, so uh, we, uh, he is one of the four guys that I connect with every single year in the Adirondacks, just freezing our tails off um, and, and living life and everything. And, and, and Jim, um, where did your love of the outdoors and camping come from? Just uh, like, where did that emerge? Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in a very rural area, um, about, uh, I'd say about 30 minutes south of Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, as a, even as a young kid uh, in the growing up in the 70s and early 80s, you know, in the summertime, you know, mom would kick us out of the house and say, don't come back until lunch and, uh, and then kick us out again later on. And we were just surrounded by, you know, woods and fields. And so uh, I, I really started to develop a, a love of the outdoors there. It wasn't really actually until um i was 
about 18, uh, 18 when I went to basic training um, at Fort Dix, New Jersey, where I uh, began my kind of love with backpacking. And that, that really evolved through the road marching that we used to do uh, each day as we uh, marched out to the uh, rifle ranges to practice. And those usually were five, six mile uh, walks. And so it's, it's a great, like, like with running, it's a great opportunity for you to kind of, you know, get into your head process and think a little bit. And so when I got, when I got back um, from there and started college, uh, I reconnected with an old childhood uh, friend and we started to, we started to go backpacking and uh, just fell in love with it. So, um, and, and today, you know, I'm an avid cyclist. Uh, I love to, to camp and, and obviously bag some peaks in the Adirondacks and, those sorts of things. So it's, it's anything outdoors. I love. Well, and, and uh, you know, Matt, a, a nickname that we we've given Jim is the lone wolf because he's the introvert of the group. In fact, there've been times where the three of us are tenting, but Jim is in his own hammock or um, one of the famous stories is uh, the first time we summited Mount Marcy um, it dropped to negative 20 degrees. And so the best thing, right, is you want to generate as much heat as possible. And so me and another guy, Chris, shared a tent together. And Jim swears his tent only fit one person. Um, and so poor Bob, who is the older guy of the group, slept outside in the cold weather. But, you know, Bob is as tough as nails. So if Bob ever listens to the show, that's a little homage to him. But um, but anyway, Absolutely. Jim, what, you know, with, with basic training, um, you know, that, that's always something I, I don't think we've ever really uh, dove into other than your expertise and everything like that. Sure. But when, when, how did that decision come about? And when you went in there, like what, what are some of the principles and things that you learned, um, from your time in basic training? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my time, you know, my time with the, the military was very, a very transformative experience. Um, it's one, it's actually one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life. Uh, you know, how, how that got started is kind of a funny story. Uh, you know, my brother, uh, I, I have a brother, he's 11 months younger than I am. And uh, one day my dad came home, I was probably 16 or so, and my brother was 15. And he said, I, hey, guys, good news. I figured out how we're going to pay for college. And we said, we said, how, how, how's that going to, how's that going to work, dad? And he said, you guys are going to join the national guard. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't such a large, uh, leap for us. My dad had served, um, in the air national guard during Vietnam. And so, you know, he had talked to us about it and, and we were kind of, you know, familiar with that type of commitment and experience. And so it really, you know, for my brother and I, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, it, we were more excited than anything. Um, and so, uh, we enlisted, um, and I spent 10 years uh, with the uh, Pennsylvania Army National Guard as a combat medic. And um, I served um, from 1988 uh, through 1999. I took a year off um, when I uh, moved from West Virginia University when I finished my graduate work up to uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where I took my first faculty position. And after a year off, I decided to uh, re-enlist with a field artillery unit up in Wilkes-Barre and uh, spent a year with them and then uh, got out. So uh, just a tremendous, tremendous experience. I mean, I gained so much uh, from my military service. Uh, I think as a young person, you know, an 18 year old, you're fresh out of high school, uh, just being able to learn discipline and, um, you know, the core foundations of, you know, the military, you know, honor, 
courage, honesty, those sorts of things that they really try to uh, inculcate into, into, into folks. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a great opportunity for me to interact with people from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, you know, growing up in, in rural Western uh, Pennsylvania, not necessarily a very diverse you know, uh, area of the country. And so, but you know, going into the military, you get to meet people from all uh, walks of life. And so that was tremendous. I, uh, you know, I think my combat medic training was really, really uh, great. I, I spent a summer down at Fort Sam Houston. Uh, in fact, that was the, the summer where um, the Iraqis invaded Kuwait. I remember that happened in August. And, uh, you know, uh, we knew things, something big was happening when they stopped all the training, uh, you know, for a day. They wheeled in televisions into the classroom and we were watching the news footage. We all kind of figured we were going somewhere immediately from Fort Sam Houston. And, um, and uh, so, and, and you know how that evolved, but, uh, you know, out of that training, I, I got my national certification as an emergency medical technician, which was fantastic. Um, and I was able to go back, uh, once I got back into the civilian world after that summer, was able to challenge um, the uh, Pennsylvania State EMT uh, certification test and, and started to work in, uh, in, that, in that area. And I spent about 10 years as an EMT, you know, going through college and graduate school. So the the medic route, both in the Army and then as an EMT, I mean, was that, you know, is that choice made for you? As you get started, is there are there pathways and you start to decide which one you want to go down? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you enlist, and I remember having these conversations, you know, at, even at the time, it, you know, 17 or 18, and, and I, I really had a strong interest in medicine and pre-med. And so I knew that whatever uh, MOS I was going to sign up for, and MOS stands for Military Operational Specialty, okay? And there's a whole wide range of them. Um, and so uh, I knew I wanted to do a, a medically related MOS. And so as, as we were discussing, you know, uh, logistics with the recruiter and signing contracts and things like that, they will ask you what you want to do. And you have to have a certain ASVAB test score in order to qualify, at least at the time, for different specialties. And certainly the medical specialties required you to have a higher uh, you know, ASVAB score than what some of the other MOSs might have. And so I qualified, my brother qualified. And so uh, that's how we ended up uh, in combat medic school. Yeah. And, and so where, like, cause you, you mentioned that going in, you knew you wanted to go the medical route. Where do you think that came from? Right. I mean, at that age, you were probably yeah. late, late teens, right? Like yeah. coming out of high school, getting ready for college. But, you know, where did that desire to go the medical route uh, come for you? Yeah, it's a it's a funny again, it's a, a funny story. When I was younger, when my brother and I were younger, and, and I'm talking about, you know, grade school age, and you know, we would talk to my my dad about what we would want to do, you know, for, you know, when you grow up, what do you want to do when you grow up? And my dad said, guys, you can do anything you want when you grow up, as long as it's a, you're a doctor, lawyer or dentist. Um, and so I, I think that probably that, you know, was where that fixated that in my mind. And then just just being very curious about uh, just having, a, I think, a, a desire to help people, which is which is something that um, is, a, is a big part of me, really pushed me in that in that particular direction. Uh, but, you know, my dad, uh, you know, you know, my family was very blue collar. Uh, my dad was an airline mechanic uh, for his entire career. And I think, you know, those conversations, you, we laugh and smile about them. But I think, you know, like any parent, you want your kid to have, you know, a better life, you know, uh, than, than you did. And so I think that's why, 
you know, they kind of, they kind of pushed us in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I, I actually, uh, before we hopped on, right. We, we have, um, a call at work every Friday and, and we call it, you know, fail forward Friday. And, uh, you know, it, it actually all tied into a lot of the things that you're talking about. So there's, we talked about the independence that was created by, right. The, 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 the heroes that were celebrating, you know, this, this, uh, you know, you know, upcoming end of the month uh, for Memorial Day. And then it translated into just like people's thoughts on the different generations and how parents and grandparents and all these people paved this path of independence for us and, you know, instilled, right? Like even as you said, right, doctor, uh, lawyer, dentist, right? right? They, they instilled these things because of what they were going through, exactly. right? Or what they had been through. And so, you know, as, as, as you like then continued to go down the path, right. How much of, you know, how much of that became, uh, you know, dad instilled it in me. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is clicking. Like, like this is the path for me. Yeah. What, what, what was that like? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I think, you know, you describe it really, you know, beautifully. I have, uh, you know, right now I, my, my daughter is uh, 17. She's going to, she's getting ready to go to college and she wants to go to medical school. That's her, you know, that's her thing. And, 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 you know, I've watched her grow up, especially over the last 10 years or so and, and see her develop this, you know, interest in medicine. Uh, a lot of it comes out of um, the, uh, you know, the, the types of courses you're taking obviously in high school and, and, uh, and, uh, also, you know, different types of experiences. Like, for example, when I was in high school, I was involved in a group called Medical Explorers, and you know, you met monthly, and you went to different, you know, you you know, uh, ex- examined different healthcare professions. You went to the hospital and met with doctors and pharmacists and things like that to um, to see and nurses to see what uh, what you might want to do. So, I think that's really where you know that that kind of it kind of evolved organically, you know, based upon my my education and also my desire to really help others. You know, and, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, not just your desire to help others, but your generosity. I mean, you know, Matt, I was knocking uh, Jim before about uh, kicking someone out of his tent, but at the same time, there was there was a situation where we were about to go on this Adirondack trip, and I, like I didn't have a, a true backpack, right? And um, uh, that was really equipped for the ride, and, and we're literally in the car ready to go, and everyone's like, "Why don't you have a backpack?" And Jim's like, "You know what? I got he." we drove to his house, back to his house, and he gave me a full pack, not just to borrow, but to have. And so I, I have that. And, and it's the same thing, right? We're, we're like hiking. And he's like, I mean, we joke that he always has one of extra, but he doesn't just like give it to you to borrow. He's like, ah, here, have that and everything. And so, um, you know, with that willingness to help people, but also generosity, is that something like that you feel is an extension of like that, you know, care for people's health or like, uh, were there people who like were generous in your life and it's uh, a, a meaning of pay it forward? Uh, you know, in, to some degree, you know, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very service, I'm a very service oriented kind of guy. And it, you know, and again, a lot of it is, you know, you, you know, obviously when you help folks and, and, you know, you both are in, in fields uh, where you're, you're helping people to achieve goals and, and their dreams in different ways uh, or to learn about, you know, their faith. Um, it's, it, it's very gratifying certainly to be able to help and to pay it forward. In fact, that's, that's how I got into teaching um, as a, as kind of a, a pay it forward story. Um, so 
when I was uh, a senior in high school, uh, I, I, was, I, I got enrolled in a couple of two or three, oh, three AP courses. And, you know, again, I, I really felt overwhelmed with a lot of this. One of them was, was an AP chemistry course that I was taking. And um, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to do. I was pretty nervous about it. I approached one of my uh, classmates. Uh, and to this day, this, this guy is the smartest guy I've ever met. He's now uh, at least the last time I checked, he uh, works at the Rand Corporation, which is a you know think tank, um, and uh, just it, he got a he went to the uh, United States Air Force Academy, got a master's degree in aerospace engineering from MIT. So we're talking like, you know, I consider myself you know a, a reasonably smart guy, but I'm a village idiot compared to this guy, right? So he agreed to to be my lab partner and to help tutor me in chemistry, and he he had no you know obligation to do that. He just did it out of the goodness of his heart. And I ended up doing so well in, in the course um, and was so grateful for his help that I made a promise to myself that if I ever had the opportunity to help somebody like he helped me, um, that I would do that. Um, and it turns out that when I got to college, I was so well-versed. I was a chemistry major and I was so well-versed in you know, general chemistry principles and inorganic chemistry principles. I was able to tutor and help other students um, through that course. And that's really where my love of teaching, um, really developed. And I think that's what led me, you know, into the, the career direction, um, in part. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it brings me to this thought, like, as you were talking about that, you know, to be a great teacher, you first have to be a tremendous student. Yeah. Right. And, and that takes many different forms, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to have your head in the books all the time. It doesn't mean uh, that things come naturally to you, but you, you've got to have this open openness and willingness to receive. Right. Um, and so you've gone down the path of teaching, right? You started this department and if I'm not mistaken, right, we're coming upon a, you know, a book now that, that almost translates all the way full circle back to that. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, who were some of those great teachers in your life, right? So, so you first had this lab partner, right? Because we're going to get to all those other things, but who were some of the people uh, along the way that really shaped it? And, and, you know, as a student, what, you know, what did you take from them mm-hmm. to become who you are today? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, certainly that experience starts, you know, started for me in high school with my friend who helped me, um, and um, my in my collegiate education, I went to a small liberal arts school in Western Pennsylvania, Washington Jefferson College, and had a lot of great professors there. And I think one of the really nice things about that college experience for me, and maybe a little bit different for for the two of you is that it was a small campus, and so you really had an opportunity to get to know your professors and really interact with them. And that, that really stayed with me uh, because uh, as, a, as a professor today, I know that a lot of the most valuable learning that students get when they're in college or graduate school or professional degree program is not necessarily what happens in the classroom, right? It's those, it's those one-on-one interactions that you have with your mentors or people that guide you. So that was, you know, there was just a whole cadre of faculty at, at W&J that were, were really uh, uh, 
transformative uh, for me. Um, and, I, and I also saw a lot of really bad examples of teachers. And, and that stuck with me as, you know, as well, too. I mean, I've, I had, you know, professors in, you know, in, in departments that, you know, you'd start the first day of class and it's the traditional look to your left, look to your right. At the end of the semester, one of you is not going to be there. Right. And uh, and that is so counter to my own philosophy of teaching today and, and, and student, student centeredness. Um, I think that the, uh, the teaching team at WVU in the physiology department, um, and I mentioned that, that, that first day of medical physiology uh, to you guys earlier, uh, that was so you know, transformative to me, um, also kind of pushed me in that direction. Yeah, so first of all, uh, as a fellow mountaineer, there's there's always right that uh, yeah. you know that that love and reciprocity that is it, you know there's there's this uh, you know familial brotherhood um, <laughs> that, yes. you, that you leave there with. Um, but yeah, talk to us because you were you were sharing right something really interesting with us prior to that. I think our guests would just love, but it was something about like one of the first days in, in classes there, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and it's and when we talk about the 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 book that I have coming out, this is really where that the seed for that was planted. And so we're, I mean, we're going back to um, 1993. So that's quite quite a number of years ago, right? Um, so some some seeds take longer to germinate than others, right? But so you know, I was very very fortunate. Um, I you know, my plan was to go to medical school. Um, and by the my sophomore junior year at WNJ, I just realized I, I, I wasn't I didn't have the GPA necessary to be competitive. Um, and it was a huge blow to me because up to that point, you know, that was my entire focus. You know, I thought I was going to medical school, I was going to be a physician. Um, and then all of a sudden the hammer drops and you realize that's not happening. And so what's plan B? And so, again, this is where really great teachers come in. Uh, my advisor at the time, uh, Pat Berletic, uh, she was the chair of the, the, bio, uh, the chemistry department, I'm sorry. Uh, she helped set me up with, she talked to me about it and kind of worked, helped me to work through that and process those emotions. She set up uh, an internship uh, for me. Uh, um, it helped me find an internship um, at West Virginia University in the uh, School of Medicine, where I ended up doing my PhD work at. And so it was, that was extremely helpful. Um, and, you know, so I'm sitting in, you know, I go to graduate school there. I'm sitting in class, my first day of graduate school uh, with a, in a medical physiology class. It's eight o'clock in the morning. There's 85 or 90 medical students there. Um, and I'm, I'm just really, really anxious and nervous thinking to myself, well, I, I wasn't smart enough to get into medical school, right? And so here I am, you know, sitting in a medical school class, how, how in the world am I going to be able to navigate this? I just, I knew inherently that there was just something I was missing that was going to make this very, very challenging. And so uh, the, uh, the professor uh, that day walks in uh, to the front of the class and you know, everybody takes their seat very quickly and the room goes deathly quiet. You know, and you're hearing the rustling of notebooks and those multicolored clicky pens, I can still remember it today. Um, and the professor walks to the front of the classroom and he uh, turns on the overhead projector because that's what we had at the time and lays down his transparencies and his notes on the podium. And he turns to us and he says, studying for medical school is like eating a salami. And you, you, know, you can imagine the, the, the confusion on everybody's faces, right? I remember looking you know, to my left and right and looking at people like, are we in the right classroom? 
Um, but then he goes on to explain this brilliant analogy uh, where um, if, you know, his analogy was that if you had a salami to eat, if you ate the salami in little bits and pieces or little bites every single day, um, by the time you were through with the salami, it would stay with you, right? But if you chose to sit and eat the salami in one setting, you were probably going to end up being sick and, you know, uh, and, and the salami wouldn't stay with you. And so uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful analogy. And much, much later on, when I became familiar with some of the cognitive psychology and educational psychology literature, um, I realized that his analogy was describing an evidence-based learning strategy called spacing. Um, he didn't call it that. I don't even know if it was called that at the time, uh, but it was, it was hugely impactful. And he went on to uh, give us uh, a handful, about a half a dozen other tips and pieces of advice that I latched right onto. And uh, it just transformed my learning. You know, I went from someone who was excited to get a, you know, a C or a B in, in an undergraduate science course to someone who was getting A's consistently and, and realized that the, uh, that type of you know, learning how to learn independently and to be a more uh, effective independent learner uh, was the key for my success. It wasn't that I wasn't smart enough or that I didn't work hard enough or that I didn't want it bad enough. It was just I lacked the skills and the knowledge to be successful. And once I gained those, yeah. everything started working. And so, right, like to break that down, that's basically the difference between you know, studying throughout the semester, really ingesting each of the topics uh, versus waiting till the night before the exam, exactly. staying up, you know, X amount of hours and cramming it. You might pass the test. You might get a similar result in the moment, but moving forward, you're not really retaining any of the stuff that That's you've got exactly at that point. That's exactly right, Matt. That's exactly right. So, and that's one of the benefits of this, that, that technique of daily spaced study um, and, and how it can impact your ability to uh, build a durable working knowledge base. Because that's really the goal, right? With any kind of learning is that you want to build a durable uh, knowledge base, one that lasts for a long time. And then one that is uh, accessible to you when you need it, meaning that you can remember, recall the information and then use it to solve problems or create something. Um, and so uh, that's one of uh, a number of strategies that you can use to learn more effectively. So as someone in academia, you know, working with students and everything like that, and um, you having your own revelation of like methodologies to study, to ingest information and to learn and grow, what do you see as one of the biggest, not one of the, but what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that you face as a professor or when you've taught with helping your students, with helping the people you're mentoring, right? Like ingest and absorb that information. Yeah. Uh, so you know, one of the things that, you know, one of the things that I do on a daily basis at my job is academic coaching. So I have my advanced academic coaching certification through the National Tutoring Association, um, and, uh, you know, so I work with pharmacy students that are, might be struggling in their coursework on, uh, on a daily basis or working with students that are doing well, like I did, you know, they were, they're, you know, they're pretty average students, but want to boost their ability to learn and, and to do well. So, uh, yeah, the big, the number one challenge I will tell you, Chris, is behavior change. 
is that's what it boils down to. I've learned that over the, the years is that you can explain to someone what they're doing wrong. You can teach them behaviors and skills to replace what they're doing wrong. But ultimately, if they don't choose to use that or change their behavior to do that, uh, it's 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 pretty you know, nothing you can do is going to be effective. So it's really I've learned it's really a lot about behavior change. And for some of my students, they get it very quickly. They're able to self-regulate their learning very, very easily. And, you know, you meet with them a couple of times and then they're they're off sailing. Uh, other students, they require regular touch points. And so that's what I do as an academic coach is to meet with them regularly. How, how are things going? Let's analyze your last exam. Let's analyze your, your, your preparation for that exam. What techniques did you use? Um, what kind of data did you collect along the, the way as you were preparing for this exam to indicate what you knew and what you didn't know? And how did you use that data to ultimately feedback and change the way that you were studying in order to be more successful. Have you ever had to guide someone out of uh, that, that field? Like just because you, you mentioned behavioral change, right? And mm -hmm. someone is just not getting it or not like absorbing the information. Have you ever, as a coach, like ever had to say like, Hey, maybe you want to consider, you know, youth ministry. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it happens. It's, and it's not usually a, a conversation that I have with someone like you said, look, I, I don't think that you're smart enough. You're able to do this. Maybe you should consider another career. I, I've only really had that conversation with one student in the last um, 22 years. And that was not because the student wasn't capable of completing the pharmacy program very successfully. She was very, very bright and smart. Her parents were both pharmacists and they wanted her to go to pharmacy school. She wasn't, she wanted to be a secondary education. You know, she wanted to go into secondary education to be a teacher. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and this was years ago. And so one of the things I did in that particular situation is to have conversations with her regularly and try to build her confidence and, and coach her through conver the conversation that she was going to need to have with her mom and dad. Um, also pointing her over to the education department so that, that she could go over there and talk to the department chair about courses that she needed to take and, and those sorts of things. So, but yeah, no, you know, those decisions are usually, usually the conversations that I have with students in that way are if students are, are dismissed from the program because of academic difficulty um, and you're trying to help them to process that or work through that, or maybe they're being held back a year and you're trying to help them to process that and what does that mean? Um, and then helping them in, in a lot of ways. Okay, so this isn't working out for you. That doesn't mean you're not gonna have a very fulfilling, productive life. There are other things to do. You know, what can you do? And, and helping them to kind of find that way. Yeah, it, it's interesting you talked about behavior change and, and, and I, I started to gravitate towards, you know, just this thought of, you know, how often are people just getting stuck, right? Whether it's in their behaviors, whether it's getting stuck on the content, and, you know, what are some ways, you know, even, you know, I, I consider myself a student to this day, right? Like, how, what are ways that people, you know, can can help themselves, right? Like, get unstuck, unstuck. in those moments, right? Because those tend to be a lot of the roadblocks. Like, you try to read a book, you get stuck on one concept, and all of a sudden, you, you either wave the white flag or it's hard to progress, you know, to get to the deadline. 
Sure. Uh, and I, and that happens, that happens all the time with the students that I work with. So when I start with coaching with students, one of the things that we talk a lot about is to give them some understanding about how human beings learn is that, you know, basic model or process of learning um, that, that, that human beings go through when they learn things. And I refer, there are, there are really four learning goals, I think, that people need to achieve in order to progress towards content mastery. Um, and those four goals are, are priming for learning, uh, understanding and building context, uh, encoding and consolidation. And then finally, you get to that last learning goal, which is I call utilization, which is where you're using the information that you've encoded into your long-term memory to solve problems or create or, or do those sorts of things. Uh, most of my students that I work with tend to get stuck in either the understanding and building context phase or goal of learning. They get, they get kind of bogged down in that where maybe they don't understand some key concepts. Um, they're unwilling or afraid to go and get help from their, their faculty members or their teachers. And so if they, if they can't get past that, they're not going to be able to move into that encoding um, and consolidation phase of learning where they're actually working with the material to help to transfer it into their long-term memory. So um, part of my job is to encourage them, look, you know, if you're taking, let's say you're taking a pharmacokinetics course, and, and I don't really know a whole lot about pharmacokinetics, and I have a student that's struggling with that, and I know it's a content-related issue, I need to encourage them to go to that faculty member to get help. So that they can they can generate that understanding. They understand how those concepts that they're confused about relate to uh, other concepts that they're learning about currently, or that they have learned about, or that they will learn about. Uh, and then um, the other phase that students tend to get stuck in is that encoding and uh, consolidation phase, with, which I refer to as it's essentially studying. Right? Uh, the when you when you think about your own experience as a student, probably the vast amount of learning that you did was not in the classroom, right? But it was that independent learning that you did in your, your dorm room or your apartment or in an empty classroom at night as you're preparing. And, you know, one of the purposes of the book that I'm writing is to uh, help to teach students evidence-based learning strategies, strategies that are backed up by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of empirical studies and have been have been studied over decades and decades and teach them how to use those strategies in their studying so that they can be effective independent learners. You know, when I when I talk to students, you know, I just in fact, I just talked to a group of students that are coming into our program, our new group of students that are coming into our program in the fall. And I and one of the analogies I like to use with folks about all of this is, you know, uh, imagine that um, Matt, what, what sport do you like to watch on television? Uh, what sport don't I like to watch? But I'll, okay. I'll, uh, I'll throw out there um, soccer. Soccer. Okay, great. So I'm sure that you're aware of the, all the rules of soccer. You might even have played soccer before, maybe as a kid or, you know. And, but imagine having someone coming to you today and saying, Matt, you're going to be playing with your favorite professional soccer team this weekend. Okay, you're going you're gonna to suit up. You're going out on the field. How do you think that's going to go for you? Uh, I, I'm probably just going to be awestruck. I'm going to get, uh, you know, totally maybe nervous in my own head. And then by the time I get out there, uh, people are going to be running circles around me. Oh, sure. And the reason for that is because you simply just lack the skills and training to perform at that high of a level. Right. And I mean, we could say the same thing about musicians as well too. Right. And so, you know, I always thought it was crazy 
that, you know, from a higher ed standpoint, that we have students that are coming into graduate and professional degree programs, even in their undergraduate degree programs, right? And no one has ever taught them how to study or how to learn, mm. right? They just figure it out. They either figure it out on their own through trial and error. They do what their friends are doing, or they'll do what well-meaning parents or some faculty will tell them to do, right? And and the research has shown over and over again that the vast majority of undergraduate and professional degree students gravitate towards and utilize very passive and ineffective learning techniques when they study. Now, some folks are able to compensate for that because of their natural intelligence and ability, right? So, Matt, you know, you might be a natural athlete, okay? And so, you know, you could go out on that soccer field and maybe they'll run circles around you, but because of your natural athletic ability, you might be able to pick things up and actually make a good showing of it, right? But if I were to go out there, you know, I have very little athletic ability. And so, you know, I would, it would be a total disaster for me, right? But over years of, you know, practice and feedback and, 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 and doing things, um, in, in a correct way, learning these things in a correct way, I, I might be able to develop the skills that would allow me to, to be effective. It, it, it almost sounds like, um, you know, I, I've been reading this book by um, Angela Duck, Ducksworth uh, called Grit, right? Yeah. And it almost sounds like you're talking about um, just that persistence and that grit to work at something um, until you improve and until you ingest it and stuff like that, right? Like, there's, yeah. Yeah, Chris, that has a lot to do with it. Certainly grit and motivation and determination, right, are, are huge components of that. And, and I, again, I work with a lot of students that have a ton of motivation and a ton of grit. And they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, Dr. Colhane, I studied for 30 hours for this exam and I got a D. Okay. Now there's, you know, they may not be, maybe they're not being honest with me. Maybe they didn't study for 30 hours, but I always take students at their face, right? I always just make the assumption that what they're telling me is accurate. And so the next question that I have to ask myself is, what did you do with that 30 hours, right? And so it's not just about grit and determination. It's really about the methodology that you use, you know? And so when I go on, I'll use another analogy with my students in that circumstance is, let's say your, your task is to go outside and dig a six foot hole. Okay, that's your task. Okay. In that, with this analogy, that student I just talked about was taking a teaspoon or a tablespoon and they were going outside and trying to dig the hole with that tablespoon, right? And they didn't make a whole lot of progress. They worked hard, they spent a lot of hours doing it, but they just weren't able to do it effectively. Um, my job is to take that tablespoon or teaspoon from them and hand them a shovel and teach them how to use it and then send them back out there to dig the hole. And, and that's such an analogy for so many industries. Right? Oh, right. And, Absolutely. And, and it's like, um, yeah, hard work, determination. But if you don't have the right tools, then, exactly. you know, you're not going to do that. And, and so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And the other the other thing that I picked up, you know, in, in the, the totality of the exchange is most people get stuck not asking for help. Yes. Right. Huge. Like. like whether they have the knowledge or not, whether they have the habits or not, people like they, they like let the ego get in the way or whatever it is. And they just never ask for the actual help. 
and it could be crippling for students. Uh, again, I, and, and it, it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with and, and really uh, it requires a lot of patience and um, you know, confidence building too. You know, and you're right. It's, it's sometimes it's about ego, you know, and, and I know I've, I've worked with a lot of students that would totally admit that it's like, yeah, I just, I don't want to ask for help because I don't want people to think I'm stupid or that I just, I don't think I, you know, I grew up in a family where you don't ask for help or I come from a culture where asking someone for help is shameful. And so um, it's really about, and, and a lot of times the only motivating factor for them to, to, to do that is when they get, they dig themselves such a deep academic hole that they don't have any other choice. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of brings me to this thought as, as you're talking through that, it, it, you know, so ego is one area that I could play into, but then you've got like, you know, people who are very introverted, right. Mm -hmm. Versus people yes. who are extroverted and, and just even the social exchange of it is something that's just so uh, taxing. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, how does that, how does that play a role? You know, the, the people's almost genetic makeup, uh, you know, into, into getting stuck, unstuck, or, or mastering these habits that you're talking about? Yeah. So, you know, working with introverts is, uh, it can be, it can be difficult. I am uh, an introvert. So, um, and uh, so I have, I have some personal insight into, like you mentioned, I love that word energy, right? You know, it's all about energy exchange. I love teaching to a classroom full of students. I love working with students on a day-to-day -day basis, but I'm tired at the end of the day. You know, that, that, that takes energy from me, even though I love to do it. Um, so working with students that are introverts, I think a couple of things uh, is that, you know, as a, as a coach, an academic coach and a faculty member, being receptive and listening is really important. Try to get them to open up. Uh, being non-judgmental, because a lot of times students have had bad experiences with faculty you know, that, hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I'm struggling in your class, what can I do? And the professor will turn to them and say, well, you're simply just not working hard enough and you need to study more. And that's the easy cop-out answer, um, or you're lazy. Um, and I, I, I've heard that too many times and it always hurts when you hear that, right? And so, um, you know, just, just, just listening, um, being open, keeping our, our sessions shorter. So, you know, knowing that it's, it's you know, and then being patient. Um, you know, I, I was, I worked with a, a young lady this past year who, when we started with our coaching sessions, you know, trying to get her to talk was like pulling teeth. But as we, as we developed a trust, right, in a working relationship over time, by the end of the academic year, um, we were having really great conversations and, um, and her, her performance improved tremendously. How much does silence play a role? Like when, when you're trying to extract um, that type of communication from someone that it might be difficult for them, you know, how much does just allowing the silence do the talking or allowing it to be silent for them to then finally say, okay, it's, it's way too uncomfortable. So now I'll talk like, where does that come into play? Right. Yeah. Cause you, you talked about receptivity, non-judgmental listening, you know, could you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, that was, I will tell you, that was something that was really hard for me to learn how to do that, to deal with that uncomfortable silence, right? When you ask a question and there's no response and you feel like you have to jump in and rescue that person, right? Because they're embarrassed. But you're absolutely right. You, you have to wait it out. And sometimes people just need time to process and think. And um, I find that if I'm, if I, it's, it's, it's almost like a game of chicken, right? Who's going to blink first? Right. And if I just, I find if I just sit there and keep my mouth shut, that they will say something. And once they start talking, usually 
um, that really leads to fruitful conversations. But it's hard. It really is because it's, 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 it's uncomfortable. See, and that's important to know because as an extrovert, right, and someone who um, works with, with students as well, um, I mean, it, it's just like there's a lot that I've learned about listening, um, a lot I've learned about silence in regards to instigate the conversation or to create the conversation, mm -hmm. right? It, um, as an extrovert, always wanting to fill the gap of silence because that made me feel awkward and not realizing that the opposite makes introverts in, in a lot of cases feel awkward. Um, and so I think there's uh, just a lot of power um, in that as well. So I, I can I can definitely appreciate that for sure. Um, you know, another thing that um, I, I just kind of wanted to, to talk about, and you mentioned this before um, um, or alluded to it, and, and of course, I know this is your wife, Nicole, both of you guys work in the academic setting yes. and everything yes. like that. Um, just a little bit, uh, Grand, uh, you, yeah, and you also work for the same institution, right? Yes. So it's kind of like, talk about that dynamic, right? Uh, Grant, you're not always driving into work together uh, and collaborating on stuff, like. but um, how does that, like, is there any time where you guys just have to turn it off and just be like, all right, like enough about academia? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it has been absolutely wonderful uh, to work with my wife and we've, we've, we've been working together since uh, before we were married and we were dating. That's how we, we actually met at work. Uh, so um, I, I, I just can't imagine not going to work every day and being able to see my wife whenever I want to. So that's really great. Uh, I think that for us, you know, we, we have absolutely, uh, we always have had a deep mutual respect for one another and a professional regard for one another. And so that has really been the, the foundation for our, our kind of our interactions at work. And, um, you know, I, I think it was tougher when we were younger. Uh, my, uh, my wife and I, we actually used to teach together in the classroom at the same time. We had a, uh, interdisciplinary, uh, course that we taught. She was the clinical specialist. I was the scientific specialist. And so we would, we would teach together and our styles, you know, are a little bit different in the classroom. Um, I like to, she's a little bit more serious. Um, I like to be, I like to have a little bit more fun. Uh, and, you know, and the fact that we were married and in the classroom, it, it made her feel uncomfortable uh, when we were first married. So I had to be, you know, really respectful of that and kind of, you know, change my teaching style a little bit when, when we work together. But as we've gotten older, um, you know, you get, you get much, much more comfortable in your own skin and uh, the students love it. Uh, and, you know, in terms of, you know, bringing work home, that was that was difficult too when we were young and we were first married. Uh, but we've learned how to to navigate that. And uh, just frankly, you know, when you're young and you're just married, if you don't have any kids, you know, it, it, there's it, it's really easy to fall into that work trap, right? But when you you know, uh, as we as our marriage progressed, we had a couple of kids, and you know, all the all the all the craziness that's associated with raising kids, you know, that that kind of you know takes over there. So. And it dilutes out some of the work dialogue and conversation. Uh, I could certainly appreciate that. Uh, we, we have one daughter and I think once, once we added to the fray, uh, knowing, you know, how focused we were on the careers, we, 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 you know, made the conscious decision to stay at one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we've started to, it's not really a dance around it, but we've, we've started to allude to this book. Yeah. Right. And I, I think it's a good time to, to really 
maybe start heading in that direction. And, and so I, I'd love to kick that conversation off with, you know, when did you recognize that it was time to put pen to paper? Yeah. So it was about, um, it was about five years ago. Um, and at the time, um, I was uh, the chair of the pharmaceutical sciences department. And um, the, you know, the department was, was going through um, a difficult period um, because of, uh, we were having some, you know, some logistics issues with our laboratories and laboratory spaces. And, you know, people were, you know, you know frustrated and, you know, and it was, it was, a, it was a tough, tough time to, to lead a department. And I was really looking for um, a distraction in a lot of ways, something I could do, you know, that was work related, but was fun and was, you know, something that was really interesting to me because a lot of what I was doing is managing logistics and talking to people and managing personnel and, and things like that. So I, I began to think about, well, what could I, what could I write about? And maybe I could, you know, take some of these ideas that I have about, um, build, you know, helping students to become more independent effective learners and put it to paper. So I just started, I started reading uh, and, 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 you know, I just pulled my computer out one day and just started typing some ideas down and one page turned to five and five turned to 15. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, you, you've got something here and that you should see it through. And that was super, super helpful for me, you know, in researching the book and writing it to help me to kind of organize my thoughts, develop my methodology, uh, really, really get familiar with a lot of the great, um, you know, cognitive psychology and educational psychology literature that's out there. And I, and I, what I discovered through that whole process is that I love applied sciences. I love taking ideas, um, theories, uh, not only from the scientific arena, but from other areas as well too, and trying to translate that and in, in a creative way, figure out how my students can use that to become more successful and effective learners. Hmm. So, um, you know, when I think about books in that vein, I, I think about, you know, a lot of them will use like research-based, right? And they'll bring it in. So like Chris alluded to Angela Duckworth and, yep. you know, um, and then there's, right, case studies that they add into it that, you know, paint a, a picture of the path they're going down. I mean, you know, what was maybe one of the, the research or, or, or case studies that like, cause obviously it's been your whole career, but one of those aha moments where you just realized like, wow, like I'm onto something based on, you know, this experience of, you know, uh, the case study or the research that you were doing. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know that it was necessarily an aha moment in mm -hmm. that way. So it, it was more of a kind of a gradual development. So I've always been very interested in working with students, you know, based upon my own experience as a student, right? And understanding how powerful, you know, learning how to learn can be. So I've always been focused on that and have always gotten really positive feedback from my students uh, about the work that I do with them. And so, you know, as the, as the main, as this, you know, as the five pages turned to 10 and 15 and 20, I really, I thought, you know what, you need to write a book about this. And um, one of, I think for me, I guess if there was an aha moment that I could do this um, is uh, when I took an online course, it was a MOOC called Learning How to Learn. 
Um, and uh, the, it was developed uh, by two professors. Uh, one of them uh, is an engineering professor from Oakland um, University, uh, Barbara Oakley. And um, another one was a neuroscientist, Terry uh, Sejnowski. Um, and they put together this online course about learning how to learn. And I took it as a professor and was just, was just captivated uh, by it and, and said, you know what? This is a really great medium to be able to teach students this. And the MOOC has been incredibly successful. I mean, as of 2015 was the latest numbers I could find, over 1.2 million students had taken this MOOC. And so, I mean, in the first year, I think they had like 300,000 enrollees in this. And so there's a real, I think there's a real interest. That was, that for me was the moment where I'm like, look, I know what I do is effective, but there's a real hunger and interest for that out there. And then as I did more and more research and realized how bad things were with regards to students just really, you know, across the country, just really don't know how to learn independently, or if they do, they've, they figured it out through years and years of trial and error. And at that point, you know, how much time has been wasted or how much learning has been wasted, um, you know, the, the reality of what I do uh, should really be happening in primary and secondary education. And what I hope is that that's what will happen in the future. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I was like, um, I was thinking, you know, if there are, you know, part of the beauty of school is it's not just ingesting the information, but it's like you said, learning how to learn, like learning exactly. how to grow, right? You know, like uh, anytime you talk to a teenager who's frustrated with math or, or science, they're like, when am I going to have to use this in the real world? And you, you're like, well, you know, especially for me with geometry and proofs, that's a whole like yeah. uh, whole uh, another story there. But um, it really comes down to learning how to problem solve, troubleshoot, you know, overcome some of these larger, yeah, critical thinking. And, and things along those lines. Um, have you seen um, any movements in other educational fields to um, embrace learning? You know. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I think that you know the funny part about all this is I was doing the the research uh, behind some of these evidence based learning strategies. Uh, I began to see and 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 realize that a lot of this information has been available for decades and decades, and some of it, you know, we've known about for over a hundred years. And it's like the big question was, well, why haven't we been teaching our students this, right? Because I've seen firsthand, and and there's been numerous numerous studies that have that have demonstrated how effective these techniques and strategies are for learning. And so, yeah, that's always been a big question. I think, I don't know if you've, uh, if, uh, if you've ever heard of the book, Make It Stick. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal book. And I encourage anybody who's even remotely interested in this uh, to, to read it. The books in this area have, have really proliferated a lot in the last you know, decade or so. So I think finally, um, you know, the fields of the, especially cognitive psychology has really been doing a really good job of promoting these strategies. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a website and a blog uh, called the Learning Scientists blog. Uh, they do a podcast as well too, and it's a group of of younger cognitive psychologists from you know across the country um, that are their job. What they're really their passion is is to get the the information out there to people, and they're they're really focused on primary and secondary education. And so I think that's really great. What they're trying to do is to educate educators in that area about these, these things so that they can teach their students. So as I'm listening, right, I, I, my brain is gravitating towards 
it, you know, is the book for the student? Yep. Is it for the educator? Is it some combination of both? Yeah. So that was, it's really interesting, Matt, because I, I really struggled with that as I was writing the book, trying to find my voice and who I was, what, you know, who I was talking to, you know, it was always from the get-go when I first recognized that, Hey, this is probably going to end up being a book. It was written for students. Mm. Okay. That's, and the book is for students to pick up, to read and to start to use that information. Um, but again, because of my training and my background as a faculty member, um, trying to find that voice, you know, uh, in writing to, you know, not to, you know, not to make it too scientific or too technical, right. Um, and, and make it as practical as possible. So it's really balancing, you know, the students have to know something about the theory in the background in order to understand why this is important, but it's the practical application of these strategies, which is really, really important. Um, I do use a lot of case studies in the book that are loosely based on students that I've worked with um, over the years. Um, and my hope is with those case studies that the students that are reading the book will see themselves in those, in those, 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 the case studies and like, oh yeah, that, that sounds just like me. Okay, so let's read this chapter and figure out what I can do to deal with this particular challenge that the person in the case study is facing. Yeah, and when do you when do you think the students right if if they are reading the book and they're they're taking it in around what age right could we start recommending it out there to people? I mean, is this you know as early as like middle school, high school, or, or is it catered a lot more towards hey? Now that we're in college with less of the infrastructure that you're used to, here's where you can really lean in and take everything you've learned and now apply this to, to you know, the rest of your life. Yeah, the, the book itself is written in the context uh, that a pharmacy student would understand. So a lot of the examples that I use in the book, you know, the real life examples have to do with pharmacy classes that they're taking or, you know, a typical experience a pharmacy student would would come across. Uh, but I would say that the book, you know, in its in its in its current format would be useful to any health profession student. Um, medical student, dental student, PA student, nursing student, um, and even an undergraduate student, if they can just kind of look past some of the specific examples that are in there, maybe, you know, kind of insert their own course or class that they have, you know, uh, familiarity with. Um, and the techniques that I teach uh, to my pharmacy students, you can teach them to middle schoolers or high schoolers. In fact, I think, if you, you know, if you had a really talented primary, uh, a primary school educator, uh, could do it with with you know elementary school children. Uh, I, you know I'm, I, that's not my that's not my um, group of students that I'm familiar with, right? Uh, but um, I, I think that these techniques can be taught at very young age. It's not rocket science. And and these techniques they're based on the four the four goals or the four principles of mastery or or what is that yes yeah, like? so, yeah so the techniques that the evidence-based learning strategies that i talk about in the book are i i teach students how to use those in such a way so that they can achieve the four learning goals quickly and effectively okay and so i'm i've been i've been using the term evidence-based learning strategies um so some of these um that i met, i talk a lot about in the book are uh the the testing effect or self-testing it's oftentimes referred to as active recall or retrieval practice so when students are studying what they what they will tend to do most students is they'll have a powerpoint 
presentation or a handout or something, and they'll just sit there for hours and read the 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 document over and over again. They might highlight, they might take a few notes on the side, they might recopy it over and over again. Now we know that some learning can can occur from that, but it's very very inefficient and very ineffective. Um, but if you can replace that type of activity with, okay, I'm going to start testing myself on the material right off the bat. And I'm going to use the results of that testing to tell me what I know and what I don't know. I can then more effectively target my studying moving forward. And the other and more important benefit to self-testing is that every time you try to recall a piece of information from your long-term memory, it gets encoded more strongly in your memory. And so, you know, multiple retrieval, retrieval attempts over time can really help you to develop that durable working knowledge base that you need in order to be successful. Uh, another one that we've already talked about is the spacing effect, right? So instead of cramming, you know, a couple nights before the exam, okay, if you end up studying on a regular basis, maybe on a daily basis or every other, every other day for your courses consistently, that, that gives you enough time to fully encode that information into long-term memory, okay? Uh, there are things like interleaving, um, dual coding, uh, concrete examples. Uh, there's, you know, uh, elaboration is another one where, you know, you may have done this when you were studying. If you're studying a complex topic, you might talk out loud to yourself. Uh, you know, if you're studying by yourself, right? And that's a very common strategy that students use, and that's really good. Or if you're studying with a group of students, if you pick one person, okay, you know, uh, you know, Joe, it's your turn now to stand up in front of the group and explain this concept to the group, right? Uh, but the, 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 the problem, you know, with those techniques as they stand, you know, they're easy to understand, like, oh, yeah, I could see where this would be hugely helpful. It's, teaching your students how to operationalize that, okay? If I just tell a student to go out there and self-test themselves, okay, they might be able to do it with some degree of success, but there's a lot more nuance to it. And so, you know, how do I self-test myself? What kind of technique do I use? How do I track and monitor my learning? And if things aren't going well, what are some other, you know, possible strategies that I can tap into to help me overcome a challenge with my learning? It's awesome, man. Where were you, Jim, when I was starting uh, undergrad? <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that, and, and and that's something where I know some of that comes with maturity, right? Getting older, um, you know, as some of our listeners know, I'm I'm back in grad school, and and so it's really interesting being a student again, you know, like almost 20 years mm -hmm. later, and uh, and so uh, just picking up some of those habits and and uh, wish that. Uh, I could do that again. And there's a lot of wisdom that you are shedding out, um, shedding, but um, for someone in your field, um, and, and let's get specific uh, as someone in academia, um, what advice would you give someone just starting out in uh, the field of academia in, in regards to mentoring and teaching and coaching students? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, um, that's a, that's a really great question. I actually work a lot with, um, early career faculty and postdoctoral fellows and PhD students that have a desire to go into academics. I have a fellowship program, uh, through, uh, university of Maryland and Johns Hopkins university that I participate in. So I do this all the time. And I, the number one piece of advice that I tell these young aspiring academics or faculty members or teachers is to, to remember that your words 
are your most powerful tool. And you can, you know, a kind word or a word of support or encouragement or, or a small kind act with a student can, can have um, enormous ripple effect across time. Uh, and, and I'm, and I'm an, a product and an example of that, right? Um, and, you know, I think that uh, they, you know, and to get them to understand that their students look up to them, even though they might, you might be close in age, you know, they, they look to you as a mentor and as someone to guide them. And so, you know, you've got a choice. If you have a student that's struggling um, and that you're trying to work with, or maybe they're just not doing too well, okay, um, you, you know, you can cut them down and really destroy their confidence, or you can take the time and invest in them, try to get to know them, peel back some of those layers and find out what's going on and encourage them um, to, and, 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 and help them find the resources that they need in order to, to overcome those challenges and be successful. But your words are your most powerful tool. That's awesome. Those are uh, really good words to uh, live by and um, a really good place to, to, to wrap up. Um, so Jim, um, the book uh, we're anticipating will come out in 2022, is that right? Like 2022, the working title right now is Evidence-Based Study Strategies for Student Pharmacists. But like I said before, it's, it's really applicable to any health professions student and uh, even a high school student that is you know, interested in the sciences or an undergraduate science major could totally, uh, could totally benefit from this. Um, we're expecting a 2022 uh, release date. It will be on Amazon. Um, nice. And so they can, you can find it there if you're interested in, 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 in learning more about this. Well, and when it comes out, we'll be sure to uh, share it with our uh, listeners and followers and everything like that. And um, Jim, um, uh, again, I really appreciate you being uh, with us and uh, just, uh, just schooling us um, in, in some, uh, teaching us how to learn, you know, and uh, I think that's something no matter what industry, no matter what season or area of life is, if we're not learning, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're dead, you know? Yep. So it's, uh, uh, Jim, it's always great to see you, my friend. Always great to hang out with you. And, uh, and thank you again for being on the show. Thank you, Chris and Matt, for having me. Really appreciate it. Matt, again, another great conversation with another great guest. So much to pick apart here and uh, take away. Um, so let's just jump into it. Matt, what what was it that resonated with you about our conversation with Jim? Well, first of all, there, there were so many different layers to Jim um, that it was really, you know, uh, a gift to, to be able to, uh, you know, unpack and, and, and kind of peel back those layers. Uh, you know, not unlike a, uh, you know, a salami. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, hold on. I just have to interrupt there. Um, and, and Jim knows this as a youth minister. Like every time I hear something salami, I just start cracking up because it's such a <laughs> one. It's a funny word. And it's a funny like I love salami, but it's a funny like uh, it's funny food. So anyway, but continue. <laughs> no, yeah. And, and, and honestly, I mean, you know, he even alluded to it. It's one of the things that that stuck with, you know, a lot of his classmates from back in the day. So, you know, I, I loved being able to go on the journey with him of, of, you know, just his quest as a lifelong learner, how it turned into, um, you know, how it's turning into a book. Um, and, you know, the biggest takeaway that I had was something I hear time and time again, but for some reason it just kind of sunk and resonated with me was to be a great teacher, 
you first have to be a great student. Mm. And I felt like Jim really uh, embodies that. Definitely. And in line with that, what I loved is the fact that there are systems to learning, right? You know, uh, there are so many times where we just, you know, I, I remember growing up in school just thinking like, well, that person's just naturally smart, right? Or that person just is naturally intelligent. And for uh, someone like me, I, I, there were things that just never seemed to connect. But the idea that there's methods to memorizing information, ingesting information, you know, just the whole initial salami analogy, right? That if you eat it too quickly, you're just gonna throw it back up, right? But um, if you take one bite at a time over time, you'll adjust it slowly but surely. And that's a little bit of what like our theme is, right? Slowing down to talk to the people around us, you know, is all about slowing down so that you can really invest in the people around you, slowing down so that you can really listen to what people are saying instead of just rushing through and trying to accomplish these different feats. And so um, sort of how you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, this was like a conversation um, just, uh, just with a, another person who is riding along with us um, in this journey. And I love when that happens in our shows. I love when that happens with our guests. So definitely key with Jim. And, and so if you wanna get in touch with Jim, we'll have some information in the show notes. Of course, you can always reach out to us, but Matt, uh, before we close here, any last thoughts? Uh, you know, the uh, the other thing I took away from him is, is uh, you know, just that feeling of when you're stuck, you know, things that you could be doing in that, in, in that space. But then, you know, in addition to that, it was how to make things stick. Mm. And, um, and I, I can't wait to the opportunity to actually like meet Jim, not through Zoom. Uh, you know, because as an extrovert and an introvert, I, I, I still think we're gonna, you know, hit it off. Definitely, definitely. So if you wanna learn more about Jim, definitely check out the show notes um, or go to our website at um, uh, betweenthemiles.com. If you have questions, you can shoot us an email at info at betweenthemiles.com. Of course, follow us on social media, on Facebook or Instagram. And we would love it if you guys left a review, especially a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere this podcast can be heard. And feel free to share with your friends, family members, your neighbors, your neighbor's dog, or anyone you might want to um, uh, break the ice with and get to know. But again, I am Chris, and with me is Matt, and we're slowing down, talking to the people around us between the miles.
This has been a Between the Miles production. Your hosts, Chris Wesley and Matt Wells. Music provided by Jam Studio Wide Open Road. For more information, visit our website at betweenthemiles.com.